0: This is a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Thank you to the room of the viewers and g'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G: Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Historical Radio for episode number 1197. I am Rob Jan and our co-pilot Megan McHugh is currently away exploring Arrakis, looking for the spice. And today's episode is entitled, Parker, bring the sun probe round. Our podcast title shall be Countdown to Sunpod Radiothon Launch because of course, For Zero-G, at least, it is Radiothon next Monday, our Radiothon show. I think this year's theme, since we're all into the uh, stay curious mode, keep the experiment going, which is certainly a description of Zero-G if ever there was one, it's almost sinister how many Radiothon themes have fit the Zero-G bill ...over the decades... (laughs) ...almost of course... ...I wasn't there... ...didn't know anything about it... ...couldn't have stopped it... ...so yeah... ...next week... ...we shall be giving away... ...notional items of curiosity... ...I think we can probably find... ...a few infinity stones... ...to uh, notionally gift to you... ...our listeners... ...who have been supporting... ...both Zero-G and... ...the Triple-R Station... For all these many years now by speaking of people who've been supporting triple r he's the person one of the people who was res- responsible for um, creating it zero g salutes stephen the ghost walker for 30 years of remarkable triple r-ing stephen was zero g's first program manager way back in the 1990s it's his fault Amongst Stephen's other stellar broadcasting achievements is something that may only impress me. But how massive is it that when you Google Skull Cave that Stephen's show comes up before the Phantom's actual lair? I mean, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. Just one of the many things that he's been responsible for over the years. Good on you, O Ghost Who Walks and... Uh, very, very much And also, here's to Woody Who is the new phantom in the Skull Cave And to whom I am compelled to say To infinity and beyond Not quite the buzz But we'll go there later on Now The Parker Sun Probe Did you watch the amazing liftoff last night Of the Delta IV Heavy NASA Parker Sun Probe Damn, that beastie just steps out quick smart, doesn't it? It doesn't exactly heave itself off the pad like the old Saturn fires. In fact, it was actually Complex 37 that they were launching um, Saturn fires from back in the day. With, um, NASA and uh, Cape Canaveral getting us act together to the moon. And this is actually a lot more energetic, this process. I think, I could be wrong here, but I think it takes. Uh, 55 times the amount of energy to get this probe to where it's going as opposed to um, leaving the solar system. Or is it to the moon? I don't know. A little bit confused there. The uh, Parker Solar Probe was named after the heliophysicist Professor Emeritus Eugene Parker, who actually attended the launch. And I think this is the first time that a, a NASA ship is named after um, know, someone living. The sun probe, which naturally is solar-powered, sits snug in the shade of a special heat shield. Um, I did see them do a little nifty demonstration of that that shield putting a puny blowtorch to one side while someone put their hand against the other and felt no pain at all. Um, this will um, use seven flybys of Venus over seven years to reduce its orbit around the sun, dropping in closer to good old Sol, I hope someone's called them, over 24 orbits in all, at which point it will be a poultry 6.2 million kilometres from the photosphere of the sun and flying through the outer corona. No, it's not meant to return a sample to Earth. It's been sent to increase our understanding of the solar wind, magnetic fields and the flow of energetic particles from the sun, all things which are rather important to the Earth. Uh, in case you're wondering, the instruments on board will be powered down for all but one of the Venusian flybys because really they're concentrating on the, uh, the solar aspects of the mission and then naturally they will actually do some sciencing so they as the uh, the craft uh, zooms by venus a little bit and the actual probe is about the size of a small car but not a tesla (laughs) and on its way to mars uh, slingshotting around the sun will not propel the probe backwards through time as it does not possess warp drive sorry captain kirk International Rescue has not been placed on standby this time to lend a puppet hand to the sun probe as it is not manned, though Lady Penelope's chauffeur is reportedly right chuffed that the spacecraft bears his name. And Tony Stark and the Avengers have confirmed that the scrubbing of the first launch attempt had nothing to do with Hydra or the Mandarin, and everything to do with actual rocket science where procedures are calmly followed and there's no space cowboying. Yes, he is irony man. Now, there is a brand new website triple R has dropped for us a playlist at this stage so we'll still be able to um, bring you the details of that other functions will follow in due course and you can still catch up with our podcasts at uh, http colon backslash backslash (laughs) fm.libsyn.com backslash zero g and I'll put that whole rather clunky URL onto the zero g Facebook page so you can check out zero g that's z e r o dash g on triple r and that's our Facebook page so I'll put that detail in there sort of a workaround for the moment and thanks to our podcaster Joe Elsinador for maintaining the podcasts at a cracking good rate. And while the um, the site ramps up to full functionality, uh, I will post the usual in-depth information on what we've talked about on the show on Zero G's Facebook page. But the playlist itself will be on the main website at rrr.org.au. And of course, you can also uh, catch up with the previous podcast at that same Libsyn site. Actually, if you just go to L-I-B-S-Y-N and that would uh, get you to it.com Alright, enough of this. these acronyms and these URLs. The Fantastic Four are back. Marvel Comics has given us Reed and Sue Richards and their kids again. Well, sort of. They've actually been stuck out in the multiverse mapping it somewhere since The Secret Wars. So there's been a bit of a shortfall in Fantastic Fouring since then. In this issue, now, it has a number of uh, variant covers. I got the one that uh, has Galactus spread across the front and the back. I thought that would be the one I would uh, appreciate. He is not appearing in this um, comic book. Uh, And not only that, um, some other people aren't appearing in there. Although there is a retro story with the rest of the Fantastic Four. Uh, What happens in this story? Well, the Thing and Alicia go and buy some kittens, but they have a much bigger decision on the horizon. The Human Torch is still coming to terms with it all. They're actually all but given up on ever seeing Reed Richards, Sue Storm and the children ever again. And Dr. Doom, what's he doing after his stint redeeming himself as stand-in Iron Man? And there's a couple of bonus stories in there as well about the Impossible Man and about Dr. Doom. Now, it's written by Dan Slott and Sarah Pacelli, and both of those have written and illustrated just about everything in the Marvel Comics universe. Dan Slott has worked on The Thing, and The Thing and The Human Torch team-up. Of of course, he's also helming the Iron Man title. If he does anywhere near as well with the FF as with that one, it will be, well, fantastic. Uh, Sarah Pacelli, same, same with her. She's done so much work across the uh, Marvel Comic Universe um the artwork in this is full of light and blocky forms which works very well for benjamin j Grimm. uh but i thought the tone was uplifting while moving out of the downbeat sort of um, uh, sadness of not having um the other half of the fantastic four around for so long is this coincident with uh, disney acquiring the rights to the cinematic rights to the Fantastic 4. Well, it remains to be seen, doesn't it? Now, there are other people working on this issue, including Letra, VCs, Joe, Magna, and Esad Ribic did this particular variant cover, and quite a few others. It's a really nice one of Galactus, too. Just a uh, a Galactus or bust shot of him in Manhattan with helicopters flying around him. And he's just about looking like he's unwisely going to grab the rotor blades of one of those. That's very dangerous, Galactus. Or uh, <laughs> Norrin Rad, as we like to call him. Uh, yeah, OK, so... Now, I thought this was a good comic book. It's a bit of a tease because it doesn't actually bring back, I'll tell you this now, spoiler alert, doesn't actually bring back the FF within its pages as such, but does give you a a bit of a retro story on one of the uh, adventures that they had too, as well as everything else that I have mentioned in there. And a special appearance, cameos by... Jennifer Walters, who, of course, is has been one of the Fantastic Four in the past. And, of course, Luke Cage, too. And a whole bunch of other people who are also connected to the Fantastic Four. So, you know, they're really pulling out all the stops for this one. Now, thinking about space and solar spaceships, I am um, inclined to play a track now that is uh, to do with David Bowie. I'm not going to play Starman or Space Oddity or anything like that. Um, But the creator of the British pre-apocalyptic six-episode science fiction television series, Hard Sun, uh, Neil Cross, he reportedly took inspiration from the David Bowie Ziggy Stardust song, Five Years, in which the narrator learns that there's only half a decade before the end of the world as we know it. And thereby learns to live in the moment and value life as it is so here we have mr Bowie with five years this is Kim Stanley Robinson author of red Mars green Mars and blue Mars you're listening to zero G on three triple R yeah you are and that was mr Bowie there with five years not one Not two, not three, not four, but five years. Five-year mission there. One Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars hits there. Ah, so much has happened since last week. Rockets to the sky, to the star, rocket to the star. Hmm, better call Saul. Now, uh, we are looking at assorted things here on Zero G. We've... um, a bit of a ramble through things. And now we're over to our Melbourne International Film Festival segment for today. As you know, we've been picking the genre eyes out of the festival, and there's a lot of genre in it. If you've seen any of the, uh, the long lists we put up on the Zero G Facebook page, you will know that there's quite a bit of stuff there that falls into our genre, or just with the general theme of sort of otherness that we like to explore. Now, I mentioned uh, there's three films I want to just have a quick look at. These have all been played. I have no doubt they will all get some kind of release over the coming year, which is often the way with the uh, the festival films. And if there was one that was slated to be an SBS documentary, I reckon that The People's Republic of Desire will be that one. Uh, it's directed by um, Hao Wu, and he actually is an interesting director he trained as a molecular biologist and um, ended up in the united states where he is a, uh, a sino commentator for, um, on various uh, websites and he has a couple of other docos up his sleeve as well nowhere to call home uh, tibetan in beijing the road to fame and beijing or bust now The People's Republic of Desire is a documentary about a major Chinese internet-based social media network which has got 300 million users. It's called YY and um, it has a virtual currency integrated to it as well. So you can um, earn... Coins and spend them there as well. So there are like games and karaoke and all that sort of stuff. So it's very interactive. Think of it as um, a kind of a combination um, multiplayer game, but also a lot of advertising, a lot of content that's um, sponsored, a lot of uh, music as well. And for all of this, you need hosts. So... These hosts, DJs, whatever you want to call them, um, they have quite a profile when you've got 300 million users. Uh, And so the idea is that uh, they'll have their shows, their segments or whatever they're doing, their programs, and while they're doing it, you can give them virtual money and see this happening online you get a visual aid so like you will give the player track and you might give them uh, a a rose a little rose will drift across the screen they'll get that you know it's very much like a gaming sort of world and you can train to become one of these hosts and the top host can make a packet load of money for example um, the top users twenty thousand dollars per month because the uh, the virtual coinage can be exchanged for real cash um, some of them live like gods and goddesses, quite literally, because they're also getting paid to sponsor products and use those products. Um, there's live streaming, there's podcasts, there's a whole bunch of things that, uh, flow around this. And the patrons really are paying to interact with them. So there's a, a whole fandom element to this as well. Um, they're called, uh, the fans are called, uh, Dia Osi, which is kind of like, um, Japanese otaku, um perhaps not with such a social stigma to it. There are male and female hosts. And the fans are aspirational. They're um, Not only are they idolising the hosts, but they also wouldn't mind becoming them as well. And it's kind of like a, a vicarious um, spending deal. You know, you can watch your host uh, tout the latest um, watch or uh, phone or whatever and you can sort of put yourself into that role. And it's not just um, virtual roses that they can give them, a bit of coins. You can go all the way up to... uh uh, trips and houses, and this kind of actually makes some um, sense within the uh, the the Asian culture in general because there 's um, a lot of things about grave goods that um, you can give people uh, paper representations of uh, things that they had in life, so they kind of can spill over into that a little bit, only perhaps not uh, with the uh, the death sort of aspect, which is another thing entirely. Um, some of them are quite talented uh, they can tell amusing stories uh, they sing themselves um, and they're, they're sort of touted as a bit of a role model too with all of those expectations resting upon it. some of the hosts are able to actually um, support their uh, extended families on their earnings there's one in this documentary called Big Lee who's uh, in that kind of thing and his extended family is really really proud of him there are some positive aspects to this but it can turn literally on a dime or a Bitcoin and there's uh, one of the hosts, um, a young woman, uh, her bankrupt father has moved in with her and got her to buy a flat eventually and her grandfather then wants her to buy him a flat too, which she does. So there's some expectations here that the, 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 the hosts feel they have to meet to their family and to their fans. Um, the fans, that's an entire other side which they explore in the documentary. Um, for example, one fan admits that their monthly income is around about $600, but they spend $800 a month on the hosts online. If this seems a little bit weird to you, just stop and think about how much money you might spend upon an online game where they've got uh, in-game goods to purchase or so on. Uh, or indeed, on your uh, on your own geek hobbies as we all know that we have out there um, there's a glittering awards ceremony each year because they have competitions between the hosts who, who can make the most virtual money um, you see the the uh, the hosts spiraling out of control in some cases and actually falling prey to real very real and severe cyber bullying too Uh, indeed sexual harassment as well there are young kids being totally exploited by their families others who seem to be a bit more in control of the process but still they're very young for all of this Uh, one of them ends up um, trying to commit suicide and from their hospital room they, they film their treatment in order to put it up on the website and enhance their profile it's um been said that this documentary the people's republic of desire is very much like an episode of black mirror and i did find it so i think it's um an eye-opener and it's very much um, in line with zero g's brief to be a bit of a futurist show it's directed by how Wu. watch out for it when it uh, no doubt will come out as a a documentary on SBS On Demand or perhaps uh, might even get a release. Um, Sometimes you'll get these documentaries coming out and they're released by Madman. But we shall see anyway. Now, uh, I want to play a little bit of a track here. I think we'll go with, since we're in a cinematic mood, the prelude from uh, Citizen Kane. This is Bernard Herman and the Australian philharmonic orchestra i don't know if he actually conducted them here doing that but i don't know if that's possible (laughs) and this is actually from according to this is the original 1941 motion picture score the prelude to citizen kane which is also about uh, a man who falls foul of his own media empire I'm Terry Pratchett, the undeservedly famous author of the Discworld novels, so you can believe me when I say that Zero G on 3 Triple R is the finest science fiction and fantasy show this side of the Black Stump. I also think Dibbler's delicious pork sausages are the finest eating anywhere, anywhere in the world, so you know you can trust me on this. Ha 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 ha, with three exclamation marks. Bernard Herrmann and. The prelude to Citizen Kane there. Orson Wells, Bernard Herman, Terry Pratchett all no longer with us, but still with us thanks to the electronic and printed media. Now that actually is quite relevant to the next item from the Melbourne International Film Festival that I'm looking at. And I do stress that these have been played through, so you probably won't find them anywhere on the list at the moment. But I do know that they generally do get releases afterwards. And there's always a few ones that we end up with in the, uh, the second week of the myth that uh, roll out that way. And this one is The Green Fog. And it's by Guy Madden, who's a Canadian screenwriter, director, author, cinematographer, editor, real renaissance can, a Canadian, and uh, an installation artist, too. And he's done quite a few films, as well as one that was directly relevant to Zero-G. I think we've talked about this one before. Dracula, pages from A Virgin's Diary. And The Green Fog is actually found footage... They've put it together as a collage, and that's why I mention it in terms of people who are no longer with us because there's a lot of these 50s noir films and 40s and stuff, 70s TV and so on, clips in here, and there's a lot of people who are all deceased, basically. But here they are, once again, being brought up into a kind of um, cinematic life with clips from their previous work put together in this collage. It's all set in the San Francisco Bay Area and they've kind of, he's actually set out to make a scene-by-scene scene reimagining of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. So if you find yourself watching this and thinking, this is all very familiar, but it's completely rejigged, that's why. It, it's its all there for you. Uh, I did find this quite fascinating. Um, there are so many scenes that they've popped up into this one, it's actually hard to keep track of them all but they do actually a good job at the end of in the end credits of um, of telling you what they've used or at least most of it as far as I can tell Um, in the green fog I noticed uh, a clip from Star Trek Um, uh, 4 there's a very obvious one Donald Sutherland um, appearing in Invasion of the Body Snatchers Um, Dirty Harry it came from beneath the sea Inner Space Bullet sister act uh terminator uh, and a lot of stuff from um the old uh, san andreas film as well um, it, it reads a little bit voyeuristic because a lot of those films are not shot as um documentaries obviously but uh suddenly you get thrust into this scene and you're going oh I'm, i don't know exactly where i am but i know those actors there's a lot of films within films in this one too looking at projectors uh television screens Um, was that Macmillan and Wife or was it um, The Rockford Files or uh, no it was and Gene Barry I'm sure it was Gene Barry in the name of the game it's a bit of a caper movie obviously if you're following uh, Vertigo Uh, and also it's got a a very solid way of of segueing between the clips, that's not entirely seamless. It's designed to look a little bit Frankensteinian, a little bit stitched together. Uh, I did enjoy it actually, and it's kind of fun just sitting there and and picking the uh, the clips out of, but also seeing how the narrative moves on at a strange pace makes you wonder how much more of this um, mixing of films... Will it become a, a thing where you do live mixing at, um, at gigs of, uh, of video footage, like doing um, a mix of uh, of tracks, of, of audio tracks? I don't know. I suppose it probably has been. I just haven't run it across it myself. It's called The Green Fog, and it's by Guy Madden, and it's... um how you know it's another one of those otherness ones really but since it is um, riffing off vertigo um, it did uh, appeal to me as uh, something to look at from a zero g point of view now i did um, watch uh, a few more of the um, notionally horror movies um, that we uh, were talking about Uh, but In the end, I decided to settle down (laughs) and watch a really old movie, The Cheaters. And this is um, one that's basically uh, a 1930 Australian silent film. One of um, the earliest fully intact ones, actually. Uh, It's directed by Paulette McDonough and starring Isabel McDonough who is um, known as uh, Marie Lorraine in this film. So Paulette is working with her sister, and she worked with her sisters before. uh, Phyllis um, McDonough is her art director, and they worked on the self-funded films. So these are like indie films from the 1920s and early 1930s. And here it's been restored for us, uh Still a silent film, but I think they actually provided a a musical soundtrack at the festival um, and in nineteen thirty three it was claimed that um Paulette McDonough was the one of only five female film directors in the world. They did ask them to go to Hollywood, but uh, they decided it was more sensible to stay at home and be bigger fish in the smaller pond here. Good on them for that. Uh, they did have a few other films. Uh, in 1926, they had one called Those Who Love, uh, which was quite um, successful, and also uh, The Far Paradise in 1928. The Cheaters didn't do quite so well. Originally, the film was about um, uh, 6,000 feet plus of footage. It um, survives at uh, a 94-minute cut and it's been restored by the national film and sound archive and the, and the story of it really is uh, is quite simple there's an embezzler um who's working with his daughter paula the director marie lorraine and she um is the bait used in a, a number of cons where they rob rich people uh, now the her father the embezzler is also trying to get revenge upon a businessman who did him a bad turn 20 years ago uh, but it all gets a bit more complicated when um, his daughter Paula falls in love with the son of the businessman and uh, so she sort of gets a bit wobbly about her, uh, her criminal life. Uh, that's all quite standard but um, I, I found this film quite charming and it had a really good um, Scam that they played at one stage, which reminded me just a little bit of the movie The Sting, which, of course, ironically was set uh, in the early years of the 20th century so this one is actually there and they're actually talking they're actually running a scam that reminds me a little bit of The Sting the cinematography is uh, quite splendid Um, there's little shots in here and I thought oh how'd they do that they must have really used a lot of light to get that one Um, they opened a a darkened room looking out onto a porch through stained glass doors Uh, and it it wasn't the total blackout that I would have expected it to be Um, they used the Sydney Harbour Bridge Build to indicate time passing By putting a a mat over it uh, Which is not exactly... Um, cutting-edge special effects for nowadays, but back then, hey, you know, it worked. Uh, and there's this great line towards the end where one of the servants bursts in and says, Master Severi, it's one of the characters, Master Severi has squealed and the cops are on the way, you know. So there's a it's a, it's a bit melodramatic in its own way, but this, this is how you played a silent movie because you needed to really project the emotions uh, while the people were busy waiting for the title card coming up to explain what was going on unless they could lip read um i suppose it would have been a different kettle of fish it's uh the cheetahs i did find it incredibly charming to just see this early film it's it's very nicely restored uh and you know this is like the 21st century i love how we keep fighting this stuff and fixing it all up and you know and then re representing it it's it's just a joy to be able to mess about in the early years of cinema I hope that one gets a a later release as well. But I'm pretty sure that they'll, um, from the 1930s, they'll they'll no doubt put it up on the uh, National Film and Sound Archive site at some stage. All right. Now, uh, our next track here is a bit of a tribute to another cinematic treat Uh, in the celebrity vein. You know we love to play celebrity (laughs) music here on uh, Zero G. This is the drunken master himself, Jackie Chan, from the best of songs of Jackie Chan, super motion pictures and the others. So I guess there are some less super motion pictures that Jackie Chan's done. Uh, Yes, there are, actually. I've seen some of those, and, yeah, that's a fair comment. So the drunken master with Jackie Chan himself. Another one of these ridiculously talented actors who can sing, dance, and fight and ride a horse and fall out of trees and break every bone in their body. Hi, I'm George Takei and I play Admiral Sulu in Star Trek. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G. Admiral? Hey, a guy can dream, can't he? (laughs) And I'll have less dreaming aboard this ship, mister. Now, that was Jackie Chan, their drunken master. And we're looking at um, something that perhaps does remind you of being a bit drunk. Uh, I finally caught up with, because I've been seeing bits of it over the years, and um, actually previewed one of the myths uh, some time ago, 2013, the documentary, Jodorowsky's Dune which i snagged off of um, iTunes it's a 2013 American French documentary film it's directed by Frank Pavich and it's basically about a failed attempt to adapt and film Frank Herbert's 1965 science fiction novel Dune, way back in the mid 1970s. Now Frank Pavic is a Croatian-American film director and producer. He did a documentary about the New York hardcore music scene in 1999 and also did a a satirical comedy film called Die, Mommy Die. And he has got together with Alejandro Jodorowsky the Chilean-French filmmaker. He of El Topo and The Holy Mountain, two films which we've seen before on Zero G and uh, analysed, also um, played at a previous Melbourne International Film Festival too. Uh, Amongst so many other films that he's done, including the more later ones, uh, Dance of Reality and um, Endless Poetry. Um, (laughs) It's a bit hard to know where to start with this one. Uh, He got... um, the film rights for Dune were um, optioned by Arthur P. Jacobs back in 1973. Um, Jacobs passed away before a film could be developed, and then the option was taken up a couple of years later by Jodorowsky, uh, along with um, producer Michael Sadu. Um So they started working around with different uh, ideas, and this is all um, illustrated by Jodorowsky's... Amazing uh, pre-production work for the film they they got very very far along in the process in fact um so there's a storyboard for the entire movie and this um has all been collated all the production artwork the storyboards etc in a book that's about i don't know four inches thick which um johnny rowski lugs around in his office showing off to uh the director of the documentary. Um, Yeah, would you not love to see that book published somewhere? Uh, A few copies are floating around. Various studios had them as he was shopping the project around, Uh, but it would be great. Although, to be fair, if you're a fan of um, science fiction and fantasy artwork, you'll actually find a lot of the artwork, the pre-production artwork here, in the individual artists who've worked on the project in their uh, own art books. Artists like H.R. Geiger, Christopher Foss, Jean Girard, Mobius, uh, and so on. So their their work is actually um, showcased uh, on screen in the documentary, and some of it's actually been uh, animated, like they do motion comics. So they've like they zoom in on the artwork and they drift it across to give it a little bit more of a, a cinematic feel. Um, they were he was going for uh, prog rock group musics like. Uh, Tangerine, Dream, Gong, um, Pink Floyd, Magma to uh, provide the music for the show (laughs) and approached Salvador Dali to play the Emperor of the Universe, Orson Welles to play Baron Harkonnen, uh, David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Udo Kier uh, and Jodorowsky was going to get his own son, (laughs) Brontus, to play Paul Atreides and put him through a, uh, a hell of a boot camp, a martial arts boot camp, in order to train him in hand-to-hand combat and sword fighting and knife fighting so he could play uh, Paul Atreides realistically. Also developed a uh, a program of um, spiritual instruction for him. Orowski's always been into that. He uh, does uh, what he calls psycho magic nowadays, does a lot of... Um, Ah, oh, it's very complicated and very Jodorowsky. So they shopped this around, they went to Europe, they started getting people together, having meetings, and all of this is documented in the documentary. Uh, he wanted to assemble his spiritual warriors, as he said, and there's that 3,000 storyboard drawings by Mobius as well where he's um, used Mobius, as he says, like a camera to create the film's look. Mobius designed costumes as well. Uh, at least one of the costumes seems to have been made too. There's um, uh, what looks like a Sadalka uh, imperial soldier or maybe a Harkonnen trooper, I'm not quite sure. Um, there is uh, – the, the interview is actually interrupted by um, Jodorowsky's cat, which is charming, a Siamese that, of course, wants to be picked up. Uh, they talk about um, trying to get Douglas Trumbull to do the special effects. Uh, Jodorowsky then saw Dark Star while he was over in the United States uh, and and got Dan O'Bannon into the process, dragging him over to um, to Paris to live. Um, and, you know, this is a, a very complicated process that they went through. Chris Foss, when he was contacted, uh, noted science fiction book cover artist, uh, still hadn't actually read the book Dune at the time. Um, so there's uh, a lot in here that, that screams of the, uh, the zaniness of um, Holy Mountain and El Topo, especially Salvador Dali playing the emperor. Uh, and he was actually going to... Uh, Jodorowsky was actually going to get a robot made of Dali, um, and pay Dali a million dollars per minute, but he would only then use the robot to um, to appear on screen. And the Geiger stuff is uh, suitably grotesque. Um, Baron Harkonnen was writ large as an actual castle with uh, pointy spears that would stab at any attackers who would come along the causeway to the castle. Uh, (laughs) uh, Mick Jagger playing um, the sting role in this... (laughs) oh my god um when he was trying to get orson wells for the baron he wanted to bribe him uh to come and appear because orson didn't want to do any filming at that stage Um, uh, he met him at a restaurant where that was orson's favorite uh, eatery and um, said look if you come and work on our film i'll hire this chef to feed you the same kind of meals every day on set and orson accepted (laughs) um to give away the ending of um jodorowsky's june um Paul Atreides was actually going to be defeated in the final duel, but become everybody as a universal consciousness. You know, this fits in with all of Jodorowsky's other stuff. And then um, the planet Dune itself would travel on and uh, make Arrakis a, a gen- genesis seed that would awake the cosmos. Wow, this mind is sort of gone. <laughs> Even the unmade film seems to have influenced Star Wars and um, the uh, Dino De Laurentiis, Flash Gordon, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Masters of the Universe, even in Contact, and, and yeah, Prometheus as well. And, of course, Dan O'Bannon, Chris Foss, Geiger, Mobius, um, they all went on to work on... um, alien and so on, you know, it's, it's this big thing. Jodorowsky is um, kind of philosophical about it all. He did go on to work with Mobius to make comic books that incorporated the work that they'd done on that and, uh, and other things as well. So And even the, uh, the producer, Sido, uh, and uh, Jodorowski reconnected and made the film The Dance of Reality later on. So, yeah, I was remarkably chuffed to watch this documentary and see what might have been. And, you know, you look at it and you think, someday... Somebody's going to, and Jodorowsky says this himself. Somebody's going to pick that up, and using CGI, just make it basically. And for all we know, in a hundred years' time, they'll just um, maybe less. They'll um, they'll they'll have digital clones of uh, Orson Welles and Salvador Dali, and they'll just put in the cast that he wanted. So I would not say that that's that's an impossibility. It um, does sound to me like that might happen someday. Now there is a, a very 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 unfortunate part of this film uh i won't gloss it over where jodorowsky trots out some of his quite i found them quite vile and um awful comments about rape culture um he's got a a bit of a record for that um i do not condone that in any way shape or form i just mention it so that you'll know it's there and be prepared for it if you're a jodorowsky fan you all have heard this before um but uh, it is there and it might you might make the decision to not watch this at all and fair enough too uh, i just present that as um as, as an, an, a public service announcement so you know what you're getting into when you see this film uh he has some basically what well, i'd say some piss poor opinions about that anyway jodorowsky's june directed by frank pavich and it's a, a documentary about the non-making of an adaptation of dune he was very happy when he saw um, david lynch's one that just didn't work at all from his point of view <laughs> so uh yeah moving on and that's about it for zero g today joe Bernadic coming up next with astral glabber and we'll go out with a track from um toto's soundtrack album for david lynch's dune and this is the uh, the desert theme Thanks a lot. See you next next time at um, farm This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.